The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Turn with me, if you would, to uh, Titus chapter 1. We're going to take a few weeks to work through this letter. This letter is from Paul, the apostle, to Titus. And uh, it's commonly referred to as one of the pastoral epistles. And this makes sense uh, once you read them. They are primarily instructions and encouragement to young pastors that Paul had led to Christ. He discipled, and then he installed them as leaders. Uh, This letter was likely written after 1 Timothy, but before 2 Timothy, in the early 60s uh, AD. And you might be wondering if if these are pastoral epistles, um, and they were written to pastors, and I'm not a pastor, then what good is it going to do me to study a pastoral epistle? I'll give you three things on it. Um, Probably could have spent all day justifying uh, believers taking these letters seriously, but uh, we'll just talk about three things. First of all, it is clear from Paul's opening of this letter uh, that he knew this letter would be read not only by Titus as a personal you know, communication, but that it would be read to the churches in Crete. Um, and, and the reason I know that, if you look at this, the first verse here, it says, Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness. So this Paul takes the first sentence to kind of qualify, here's who I am, and here's why I'm writing this. The reason I know that wasn't for Titus is, as we move along, we're going to find out, and there's other referrals in the scriptures to Titus. Titus and Paul were like this. They were bros, and uh, they had already done missionary work together. Paul did not need to qualify himself to Titus. So Paul was letting everyone else know that might hear this as it's circulated in the churches, Okay, here I'm Paul. I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. I've been sent on this mission. Here's why you're hearing a, a letter written by me, so that they would understand it had authority with it. Okay, so clearly we, we know from that. There's other clues in there too, but I think that suffices to let us know this is not just, you know, um, a, a letter from a buddy to another buddy that nobody else was going to hear. It, it was meant for everyone to take part in. Uh, the second thing I would tell you is that 2 Timothy 3.16, we all know what that says, that all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. And so uh, I, I believe that these 66 books of the Bible, 39 Old Testament, 27 New, I believe that God has preserved and ordained these as his Scriptures. And so the fact that these letters are included in those means they have the authority to teach us something. And uh, we are not like those throughout some of church church history and, and our tragic past that have told people that, you know, there's a certain elite class of people that are closer to God. They should be the only ones with access to the scriptures, and the rest of you just listen to what I say. That's not how it works. We want you to be able to have access to everything that God has revealed to us, and uh, don't, don't take anything anybody says for granted, including me. If I say something that contradicts this book, then uh, come give me a loving smack upside the head, okay? Pastors, uh, number three. Pastors and teachers do have a higher level of accountability according to James 3.1, right? James, in James 3, he starts off, he says, many of you should not presume to be teachers because they will be judged more harshly. So we know that there is a, a higher bar as far as accountability for those that preach and teach the Bible. Uh, Hebrews 13 also says that spiritual leaders watch over the souls of the flock of God as ones who will give an account. This is one of the most terrifying verses in all of the Bible for those that are called to the, the ministry and are called to be a pastor. It's probably one of the reasons as God began to stir in my heart the reality that he wanted me to plant this church, why I probably dug my heels in a little bit and if I was going to get in trouble with God about something, it was probably going to be because I was going too slow because I really wanted to make sure he was asking me to do this because this is scary. This means when I get to heaven and I'm standing in front of King Jesus as depicted in Revelation with feet like bronze and flames in his eyes, uh, King Jesus glorified, and and he's going to look at me and he's not only going to ask about my life, but I'm going to have to talk to him about you if you're a part of this church. So would you please knock it off, okay? (laughs) Help me have a shorter conversation with flame and eyes Jesus, all right? If you got any love for me whatsoever, please, I'm asking you. It's so serious. Um, and uh, 
So pastors will give an account, and, and um, if they are faithfully serving Jesus, um, in Hebrews we're given this instruction that um, leader, the spiritual leaders, they, they care for the flock of God, and then he goes on to say that if they're doing a good job at that, and if they're following Jesus, and if they're sticking close to their Bible, uh, in Hebrews 13 it says that uh, we should seek to imitate their life and example. So if Paul is instructing Titus in a certain way, uh, even though he will be judged more strictly than the rest, the bar of obedience is really at the same height for the rest of the flock of God as well. Because whether or not you're a, a pastor or a preacher or you know something you consider to be you know fivefold ministry, people use that terminology. Um, even if you're not in that classification, you're still called by Hebrews 13 to imitate the example of leaders that are good ones that are really following Jesus. So. I can tell how excited everyone is about that. It's really good stuff, isn't it? <clears throat> yeah, all right. So I'll, let me translate that for you because that might seem a little heavy. So here, if you ever catch yourself saying, well, it's okay for me to do this because I'm not a pastor or a leader in the church, okay? If anything, thought like that's ever crossed your mind, maybe you wouldn't say it out loud because someone might hear you. And then, you know, when, a lot of times when you say it out loud, you realize how crazy it is, the stuff that's going on up here. So you might just keep that in the old noodle. But if you think that and use that to justify what you're doing, um, the, the reality is that you, you have derailed. You've derailed and all of your tanker cars full of combustible fluid are leaking out and you are one second away from an explosion. The same kind that happens every time we choose sin over God. Okay? Don't do that, man. Don't ever justify yourself by saying, well, I'm not called by God to lead. And, you know, they're judged stricter, but I'm just this simple old Christian, and I can kind of do what I think I want to do. Well, <laughs> it's not going to work. Um, and that's dangerous water, and I wish you wouldn't do that because I love you, okay? I don't want your train to blow up. What I'm trying to say with this over-the-top and exceedingly destructive illustration is uh, all of the content of these pastoral epistles absolutely applies to all of our lives uh, if we want to serve and follow Jesus. And my assumption is, there's a few of you in here that want to serve and follow Jesus. Is that right? Amen. Amen. Good. That was good two or three of you were excited about. The rest, I don't know if you thought this was a comedy show or what. I'll try to kick the jokes up a bit, but really we're here because we want to serve and follow Jesus. So that's, that's the primary reason for this gathering. I'm not sure how you got here, but that's what we're doing. All right. Uh, okay, so let's read these verses. I'm in Titus chapter 1. I'm going to start in verse 1, <clears throat> and we're going to go to verse 5. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago, but at the proper time manifested even his word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior." To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. This letter to Titus is interesting in that it is the only record we have uh, of Paul planting churches or doing missions work in Crete. Um, it does make sense, though, that Paul would target Crete for gospel ministry. Uh, first of all, we see that in Acts 2, uh, there were Jews that were from Crete that had come there for Pentecost, and uh, they were witnesses to the miracle the Holy Spirit did where the disciples were preaching in different languages and everyone was hearing them in their own tongue. Is that ringing a bell? That was a cool thing. Wish I could have been there to see that. Um, and these guys also heard Peter's powerful proclamation of the gospel that day, and it's likely that it's on the lips of these Jews who went back to Crete, and they were saved on that day when they heard the message of the gospel there, uh, that that's the first time that the message of the gospel got to Crete is when those guys returned home. But it's clear that God sent Paul and Titus to help establish churches and further along uh, that work that had begun. Uh, Crete was a fairly strategic place uh, to preach the gospel because of its geography, uh, it's the largest Greek island, and it sits right at the imaginary line between the Aegean Sea and the Mediterranean Sea. And so I don't know how you're doing as far as geography class goes, but if you just imagine a map, like the, the big body borders of the Mediterranean Sea, and then there's like this, what looks like an inlet, and that's the Aegean. And so kind of this cutoff right here, Crete sits right in the middle of that. And so you'd have to 
pass by it essentially to get in and do any trade there. Um, so a lot of travel and trade flowed through the island of Crete because anybody coming or going was going to go right by it. Um, it was also a place that if won for Christ would definitely bring him glory. Uh, the inhabitants of Crete were known for being liars, gluttons, and just generally unpleasant people. They had that reputation. Um, and that is, that is the origin of the insult. If someone were to call you a Cretan, they're referring to these people. Anybody ever heard somebody call somebody a Cretan? Uh, yeah. It, it's generally, it means like a stupid or a brutish person, um, and the Cretans were known for being this way. Uh, aren't you glad that Jesus goes and chases down the worst kind with his loving kindness and pursues them for salvation? I'm real glad because I'm not sure Cretan would have done me justice before Jesus came and changed my heart. I was worse than a Cretan. You could use some dirtier words to describe me. But Jesus came and pursued me, and I'm glad he sent Titus uh, and Paul to Crete with the good news of the gospel. Even though everybody in the Aegean thought they were wretched, Jesus thought they were worth something. I can relate to that. Most of you have been so sweet and good your whole life, you'd have a hard time relating with that. But I can, I can relate to those Cretans, man. Amen. Uh, now, this also tells us a lot about Titus. Titus would have had to have been a pretty bad brother. And by bad, I mean good. You guys just have to... I, I grew up in the 90s, so... There you go. Um, cut me a break. So... We know from the book of 2 Corinthians that Paul sent Titus to deal with Corinth after he had laid the smack down on them with his first book. You ever read 1 Corinthians? Paul came with the hammer in 1 Corinthians. I like 1 Corinthians. He is dealing with stuff, man. He was not leaving it unsaid. And so after he sent that letter, get this, then he sends Titus to go take an offering. <laughs> to go take an offering from the Corinthians, man. Titus has got to be the man. You know what I'm talking about? Paul sends the inflammatory letter. You guys are sinning. Stop. You're about to all get kicked out of God's church. You better knock it off. Titus, I need you, I need you to go get an offering from them so we can keep, so we can keep gospel work going um, over here this other way. So Titus is a bad man. Uh, Corinth was really, man, it was one of the, it's about as wild as it gets as far as uh, what we know of you know, ancient antiquity and different uh, cities and stuff. It was a crazy place. So uh, Paul sent Titus for that job. Uh, Paul also leaves Titus in Crete, and here's what he says, to set things in order and appoint elders in every city. Uh, part of why we're going through this book is it's going to give us the opportunity to, um, A, just go through a book in an expository manner, but B, it's going to bring us into some teaching on church government and what that looks like. So we're seeing some of that teaching begin here where Paul says he wants them to appoint elders in every city. Um, and, and though Titus is a son in the faith to Paul, it's clear that he walks with the same fatherly anointing that Paul does. Uh, and he seems to be the guy that Paul reaches for when he needs a strong and mature man to go into chaos and immaturity and bring order to it. It seems like over and over Titus is that guy. Uh, we got one of those situations, one of those groups of people that no one else wants to mess with. Well, Titus will go. And uh, I, I hope to be known as a man like that. Um, Crete would not have been an easy mission field. Uh, and only a man with a vibrant and authentic commitment to Christ and a spine of steel could be tasked with setting things in order amongst the churches on that island. Uh, just to give you a further idea of the monumental task that this was, um, Crete was known just for general debauchery, but also it was a hub for piracy because you had to pass by it to trade with any of those cities on the Aegean. So if you're a pirate and you know a bunch of people want to trade with all these cities inside of here, well, Crete was in a great spot because you could just jump out from there, grab a ship. And so it really became this hub for piracy. And, I mean, I asked myself this question, so I asked it to you. Like, have you ever tried to minister to a legit, like, you know, ar matey, like, shiver me timbers, like, legit, real deal, eye patch pirate? I haven't, but I can't assume it's easy. But in studying for this, I realized I needed to find my bucket list and write down, I want to lead a legit pirate to Jesus. I'm hoping that the Lord can somehow orchestrate that event in my life. Um, it'd be cool if I had to sword fight him to get him to like submit to what I was saying. I won't write that down. However the Lord wants to do it, I, you know, 
but he knows the desires of my heart, so. Okay, so there is some controversy surrounding this work in Crete. Uh, some people question the legitimacy even of this letter. Uh, so most people, there, I, classes and classes could be taught on what theologians bicker about. I'm just going to give you guys a bit of it so that you're aware that it's there if somebody uh, were to bring it up. Um, the n- main problem people have is it doesn't seem like the timeline given in the book of Acts that describes Paul's life and ministry uh, leaves room for this event of, of him going to Crete and putting Titus there. Also, Titus is kind of mysteriously missing from the book of Acts. Uh, there's theories about that too, but um, I think there's a couple options of how that isn't an issue and doesn't mean that Titus should not be considered legitimate and written by Paul and part of the scriptures. Um, and this is not the only options, but um, I think he, A, he could have begun the work while shipwrecked there as a prisoner. We have very clear documentation that Paul was shipwrecked right near Crete. He was a prisoner while it was happening. And so, uh, you know, when you got shipwrecked in, in that day, it wasn't quite as easy to just pick back up and get on, get on your way. There wasn't like AAA for ships, so they would have been stuck there a minute. Um, and I really think it would be awesome, honestly, if this is what happened. I think it's the least likely of the things I'm going to tell you, but could you just imagine Paul like saying to the Roman officer in charge of the ship, like, I notice we're broke down, and we're going to be here a mile. You, you mind if I like take a rowboat and go evangelize this island real quick while you guys are getting stuff together? I'll come back. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how it happened. I hope that's what happened. It's, it's probably less likely than the other scenario, which is that he, um, he probably returned and did this work in Crete after his first imprisonment, but before he was beheaded during the reign of Nero. So there's a gap of time in there. That's most likely when this happened, which may have been after the events uh, that Acts was recording. So I've given you some background on the place and people involved. Um, so let's, let's start looking at the text together. We're just going to take these first five verses. I want to give you some background, kind of get your feet wet on a little bit of the history that leads up to this letter. And uh, now we'll deal with this small portion of text. Uh, for, so verse 1 says, Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness. Um, you'll see that many times Paul describes himself as a bondservant of God. Significantly, when Paul used the term bondservant, he chose uh, the Greek word doulos, and this word not only designated a very low slave, uh, there's one Greek scholar that even called it the lowest, the most servile, the lowest class of slave. It was also the word used to describe a slave by choice. And this is something we're not super aware of, but that's, you know, in that day you didn't have as many options. And so sometimes people would choose to go into lifelong servitude for somebody that had the resources to take care of them while they did that. So pretty much, you know, room and board and food, they didn't have any other options, so they kind of sold themselves into this servitude. Uh, this word, doulos, also has with it, so a connotation of, of the word for a slave by choice, but also kind of a disregard for oneself uh, for the benefit of another. Um, and so it's, it's kind of a loaded, beautiful word when Paul refers to himself as a bondservant that way. Um, verse 2 says, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago. I'm really thankful that God cannot lie. That means a lot. I don't know the last time life and circumstance like came crashing in around you and a promise that came from God himself like mattered to you, but that's a semi-daily occurrence for me. And, um, not, not just because I'm not just exposed to my own life, I'm exposed to a wide variety of, of folks' lives and situations, and so it's, there's not many days that go by where I'm not desperately clinging to one of God's promises and trying to help someone else also desperately cling to that promise. And so the fact that he cannot lie, it is not even possible his character is so pure and perfect that God could not be deceptive. It's impossible outside of the realm of possibility for his character. That, to me is an incredible thing. Something we could gloss over, something we could miss as we assume that this first few verses is just Paul kind of saying something fancy at the beginning of the letter, but um, it matters in my life that God's always honest. 
that he never, ever lies. Thankful for that. Um, And this says that, so only truth comes from God, and it says that this truth from God, this truth pertaining to eternal life, that it leads to godliness. The truth that God, all truth of God leads to godliness. It draws us closer to him, and we know from Romans that part of what God's doing is he is conforming us to the image of his son. And so the more of his truth we understand, the more of his truth that's in our hearts, the more of his truth that we live out in obedience, the more like him we should be. We should be more godly. And so um, I just I, I feel impressed by the Holy Spirit to deal with some things out of these verses that maybe typically wouldn't be drawn from them, but it's something that... Uh, I don't know, I just, I just feel it's pertinent. And, and normally we wouldn't turn to another verse midstream here, but we've got to go do this. Turn with me, if you would, to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Normally I wouldn't have you find two verses in your Bible in the middle of a sermon. I don't want to make you work that hard. Um, we're we're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 here. And, and uh, I want to start in verse 8. We're talking about the truth of God leading to godliness. Here we go. This is Paul writing to the Corinthians. I told this this will make sense because of what we talked about earlier, how, how he had to send Titus in to deal with the situation. Paul talking to the Corinthians says, For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, okay? This is his second letter to the Corinthians. He's referencing his first, where his first letter bit. Lovingly, but he was dealing with sin because he's a good pastor and loves him for real. Uh, he says, for, for though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, though I do regret it, for I see that that letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the, so, the, the, for the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. It's an important distinction, and we need to talk about it. Okay? Um, confession... The simple act of verbalizing our sin or our failings, it is a part of repentance, but repentance is not simply an acknowledgement of sin. I think sometimes people think confession is repentance, and they're not the same thing. Repentance is to turn from sin and strive with God's help to do what Jesus told the woman caught in adultery, to go and sin no more. I think the danger is sometimes we stop short a confession, thinking that we've done what is required, and uh, that's really dangerous, especially according to 2 Corinthians 7. Here's what it says. It says, worldly sorrow leads to death, okay? Romans 6.23 tells us that sin, all sin, leads to death, but that the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. Uh, anytime the inspired scriptures of God are telling me something leads to death, I want to like Stop and pay attention a second because I want to avoid that, right? This is, you know, I, I feel like God's word is fairly authoritative, like totally and completely always authoritative, knows what he's talking about. So if he's going to say something like, this is going to lead to death, like I just, I need to stop and pay attention and not do my normal, you know, I'm half distracted by whatever else is going on. Hold on a second. He said, this is going to make me die. Let me really pay attention here. What is, then what does he mean? What is worldly sorrow in contrast to godly sorrow? What's What's this distinction he's making? Is he splitting hairs? I don't think so, because he's talking about this, this other kind is going to really cause you a lot of problem, like all the way down to a casket. So let's, let's see what he, what he means. Um, worldly sorrow leads to death. The realization of our transgression against a father so good and loving as God should wreck us. Our sin should wreck us. And I know what some of you are thinking. Some of you have listened to too many guys on TV with a perma smile that have told you, 
you know, God wants you to be happy, and, you know, there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. I, I am so thankful that that verse is there. I am so thankful that verse is true. No, there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus, but I'll tell you what there is. There's conviction, and it should wreck me. When I realize I have transgressed and turned my back upon a God who is so loving as to send Christ to the cross in my place, that is not a light thing. That is not to be dismissed and just on to the next thing. And if the guy on TV won't talk, he don't have to get that loud or angry looking like I did, but if he won't at least talk about sin mattering, then turn that off, please. I love you. And I'm charged with watching over your soul, and some of that stuff is poison. And it's so far from the truth that it's not even worth your consideration. Okay? He's just jealous because he's on TV. They could come offer me a free TV spot right now. Promise you I wouldn't take it. I don't want to be on TV. So I'm not jealous. I, I, just, I know I have a face for radio. If they offer me a radio spot, <laughs> I'll take it right now. I'm not going to do TV. Plus, I'm not wearing makeup. It ain't worth it to me. Okay? Uh, so our, sh- our sins should wreck us. Um, we should hate sin and not seek to confess it just so we feel better. Christ- the act of Christian confession and repentance is not the same as what we talk about in, in psychological circles, and-, and-, and I'm not against those things. Please, I- there are very faithful Christian, you know, uh, professionally trained psychiatrists, psychologists who are also Christian that are very helpful. I'm thankful to God for the gift that he put in them. Uh, but, but there are others that do not consider the Christian worldview in context in their other therapy practices, and they'll tell you things like, well, just you just simply getting it off your chest is going to help. That's, I mean, maybe, but it's, we're not done yet. That's the point I'm making. Confession, simple confession for, and, and isn't there a problem in the, in, in the whole motive there? Like if, if my confession is, I'm, I'm coming to, I'm going I'm to say this because my assumption is I'll feel better afterwards. Apparently then my sin has not wrecked me. Apparently I've not understood the depth of my transgression because I'm still worried about me, which is what got me in the sin to begin with. Confession is great only if followed with true repentance. That's the only time it even matters. And if I'm, if I'm coming and I'm, I'm sharing with a, a Christian brother or, or sister or I'm, I'm talking to God and, and my whole motive for confession is, man, I feel this weight and I want this weight off me so I can feel happy again, oh, we're in a lot of trouble. It's worldly sorrow. It's worldly sorrow. It's not, it's not Christ-centric or God-centric sorrow. I'm not, I'm not bothered by the fact that I've been treasonous to the God who loves me like he does. I'm, I'm just simply bummed out that there's consequences or that I feel, I feel something about it, I, you know, and I want that gone, so let me, let me confess it so that I can get that away from me. Well, if that's the motive, then I think we've missed the whole point. Uh, the inevitable consequences of sin should not be the most painful part for us of the process. So, so here's the bottom line. Sin does lead to death. Spiritually, sin is without the intervention of Christ and his cross, sin leads to death for every man and every woman. We know that that's true. But spiritual death is not the only consequence of sin. Let's just do a poll. Maybe I need help proving this. Has anybody here ever in your life had a consequence on this side of eternity for your sin, a negative consequence come out of you sinning? <laughs> this guy right here, yes, every one of them. <laughs> Whether I saw it coming or not, whether I thought I was going to get away with it or not, whether I thought I hit it way dark down deep in the corner where no one could see, bet every single time. What's done in darkness comes to light, and those consequences come a-knocking. There are consequences for sin, but my point is that that should not be the thing that bothers us most when we do stumble and fall. I'm feeling pain now, or I'm feeling I have this obstacle in my life now because I made choices that have led to it, right? That should not be what bothers us most. The inevitable consequence of sin should not be the most painful part of it for us. It should be the pain of knowing we spit in the face of our Savior yet again. That should be what bothers me most. When I'm standing at the end of this service and I'm holding the communion elements and I'm bearing my heart before God, I'm not looking for him to come and make me feel better about what I did. I'm hoping, I'm I'm placing all my hope again in in, in the perfect promise that he will forgive me 
that he will come and cleanse me, that he will not leave me in that condemnation. And I'm going to thank him in the midst of it that he had the love, the fatherly love to come and convict me about it instead of just leaving me to my own devices. That's what this looks like. This is why when we gather for community group and we break down for accountability, we don't all just throw our sins and struggles in a big pile and then high-five each other and leave. Okay, got it off my chest. I did this, 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 and this. I said this. Did this with this person. Did this to that person. Um, Pretty much didn't care what the Bible said about anything. Rock, see you next week. No. We do that. We confess our sins, but then we pray for each other. But then we get in there and we, we ask for God's grace to empower us to go and sin no more. And we feel the weight of each other's struggles and burdens. And we help lift those by praying together for each other. It's not, it's not just a, a group get it off your chest session. It's a group let's come before the Lord and, and plead with him for his mercy and grace yet again because we desperately need it. Because, I mean, let's face it, our failings are many. And, and, and I don't want you to overcorrect this and end up in con- condemnation. Remember, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But what there is is conviction, and it's a beautiful gift. And it leads us to godly, sorrowful, broken repentance. Not this worldly kind of junk that's all about me feeling better about what I did. We're praying for God's help when we gather together like that and we we confess sin to one another and we're open and we walk in the light as he is in the light and we're praying for each other and we're asking for God's help, his grace and his power to put those sins to death. We don't manage sin. We don't play around with it. We don't do our best to minimize it. The hope and the power of God is available to put sin to death. And, And I want to explain something for you. There is a difference between worldly sorrow and a kind of an apathetic, flippant attitude about sin and genuinely struggling with something. Okay, I need you to understand that. If you have, if you have prayed many times and yet you still find yourself ensnared and entangled from time to time with a sin, but you are broken about it and you desire nothing more than to be freed from that, you are not in this worldly sorrow category. You are awaiting deliverance and God will be faithful. Trust him. He hasn't failed anybody yet. If you're over on this other side where it's like, I just keep doing this because I've heard a lot about grace and the guy with the perma smile told me, God loves me, God loves me, God loves me, and that means he won't punish me, you're in the worldly sorrow category and, and I fear for your soul because this talks about it leading to death. And I, lo- I really love you. Well, you don't know my name. It doesn't matter, man. Jesus has loved me so good, I don't have to know your name to love you. And I do care for your soul and that's why I'm going to talk to you like this. So you can like it, hate it, be mad, glad, sad about it. That really doesn't matter. My commission as a preacher of the gospel is to actually preach the gospel, to tell you the truth. And the gospel includes bad news and good news. If it's preached rightly. And, and this is why the bad news must be preached. It is only our realization of our utter and complete spiritual bankruptcy that brings us to a place of true repentance and faith. Let me, let me qualify that. The, the, the problem is the way, <laughs> the way the gospel is preached many times today is people will say Jesus loves you, Jesus accepts you, Jesus wants you. All of these things are true. And somebody could grab a hold of that and say, okay, great. But without... But what Jesus also does and what is required for that transaction to happen, what is required for that relationship to exist is salvation. And salvation comes through repentance and an acknowledgement of sin. And that only comes when somebody's willing to tell you the truth and say you have sin. And we don't like that today. Because there are those that will, there are those that will claim to be messengers of God that will find another way to talk to you about this. But here's what you need to know. You've got to believe this. This is the truth. If the gospel's not offending somebody... It's not really being preached. Because today in this culture, it is not even okay for me to assume with most people that there is a right and a wrong. 
Where we've gotten, where we've evolved to, I would put a D in front of that word, we've devolved to, is this idea that there is no right and wrong, that, that you, the individual, in whatever situation you're in, you have the autonomy, you have the, you have the godness to dictate in any given situation what's right and wrong. And you need no supreme ruler, you need no creator, you need no God above you giving you terms for what that really is. That is utter and complete stupidity. And, and, and the same person will want to ask questions like, well, uh, how is it that there's so much evil in the world? How could there be so much evil in the world if God's so loving and so good? Well, what you've, what you've admitted right there in, in, belie- in, in asking me about all the evil in the world is you, you must believe then there is good. Right? Because you, you're comparing it, you, you, you're talking about evil, so what's the opposite? I mean, you've got some idea of good and evil. Okay, so, and how are you determining, dear friend, what evil is? Well, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm just, a, I'm a decent human being, and I can, I can, you know, even emotionally, I, I, can, I can figure out what's good and wrong in, in any situation. I don't need God to tell me that. Here's the problem with that, friend. There are cultures in this world where Hopefully in this culture, by and large, our, our ethic is that we should love and help our neighbor, right? Well, there's cultures throughout time and history, and probably even some today, if you go hiking far enough, that their, their ethic is you eat your neighbor. Both of them believe that's right. Both of them, all of their societal experience and all of their culture tells them this is right. Are they both right? No. <laughs> it's not a straight question. No, they're not. Never in any circumstance ever is it okay to eat other humans, okay? <laughs> and you shouldn't need God to tell you that, I guess, but, but, but here's the point. There, there is right and wrong, and if there's, if there's right and wrong, if there is this moral law, if there are these rules, then what that presupposes is a moral law giver. Somebody has to determine that. Somebody has to be in charge. And that's been our problem from the garden, People get all fixated on, was it an apple or a pomegranate or what kind of fruit were they eating? It did, look, the fruit was not the point. Here's what got in their ear. You're going to be like God. God didn't really say you'll die. You're going to be like God. You'll be, able to, you'll be able to know good and evil just like God. And what that stroked was the pride that rests inside of every human heart and that desire for autonomy and self-rule that we are still suffering from today. They wanted to be like God. <laughs> That's the problem. We're not. He is. And there is right and there is wrong. And he determines it. Because when, uh, when you're let there be light and there is guy, you get to determine what's right and wrong. Right? When you say, let there be everything, and with your words, you know, ex nihilo, out of nothing, you create everything, you are default the rule guy, too. Yes, sir, I'm going to listen to you. But our problem is we're, conce- we're deceived consistently that I, we should be that guy. Well, I know better than God. No, you don't. No, you don't. Because he knows you better than, well, well, nobody understands my situation. Yes, he does. Knows it better than you know it. Knows what's going on in the deep parts of your heart better than you do. Don't you dare let yourself off the hook. Well, I'm the, I'm the exception. Mm-mm. I love you. I'm going to just try to cover all the bases and chase you into all those corners where you're trying to exclude yourself from all the tough stuff I'm saying tonight. Because I love you. Okay? So I'll, I'll do that work. I'll chase you. So, so that, and, and that's my point. So I, it is only out of our spiritual bankruptcy, it is only out of understanding that we absolutely cannot save ourselves, that we are led to a true salvation. There are a lot of people who, who, who think that they're They've been placed in reconciled relationship with God, but they've never, they've never even understood that they needed salvation. Nobody ever told them the truth, man. I needed it. You know, that's, that's part of... How do I say it? That's, that's part of why I believe God has called us to minister to people that the world would consider less fortunate. Because it's people that got everything under control they're the hardest to preach the gospel to. When somebody's, you know, got the perfect nuclear family, all the vehicles, all the insurances in place, you know, and they got money in the bank and, you know, thousand count Egyptian sheets, how do you tell them they're in need of a savior? 
They've done pretty good on their own. And I know I'm speaking to some of you. And, and here's, don't, please don't misunderstand me. I'm, I'm not this guy that gets it out of balance. There are, there are unrighteous rich people, and there are unrighteous poor people. There are righteous rich people, and there are righteous poor people. And, and Satan's done a fairly good job, I hate to give him any credit, at getting those two groups to hate each other and assume the other one's always evil, right? Your average person of affluence thinks poor people are dumb and lazy, and your average poor person thinks that somebody that's got any more money than they do must have stepped on somebody's head to get it. That's not always true. So quit, you know, quit idolizing your monetary status, okay? There are people with different amounts of money than you that love Jesus too. Still friends? Long distance high five. Go ahead. There you go. I figured if I was going to get in you know, and start cutting, I might as well mention money too. Just that way I caught everybody in here, get somebody frustrated about something. Didn't want to leave anybody unticked off. Um, there are preachers today who won't say the word repent. Okay, Here's my question to you. How did 3,000 people become Christians on the day of Pentecost? Peter told them two things. You're sinners, and you need to repent. He started by saying, you just killed the Son of God. He went in there, both barrels blazing, and let them know. It's you. You're responsible. And, and, and the Bible says that, that that kind of legitimate, loving, hard, Holy Ghost preaching, that those, those people were cut in their heart, and they came to him, and they said, what must we do? What must we do to be saved? What was the first word out of Peter's mouth? Repent. Repent. Got to repent. See, it's not that. I think the confession that's talked about in Romans 10, uh, 9 and 10, it's, we, we can't just take something like that and say, okay, well, it, it says confession. And if I look in a dictionary, well, that says that I just have to say it. Assumed in that confession because of the grand narrative of the scriptures is repentance. I don't, think, I don't think there's even any room allowed for us to think that we can just, just offload uh, verbally and think that, that we're done. If I'm coming to confess sin, it should be because I'm broken over my sin, because I've turned my back on a father that loves me so, as good as Father God loves me. And, 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 and pouring out of that and coming with that is going to be repentance every time. And so I think, you know, call me crazy, some wonder why, you know, nationally in this country we have this seeming decline in people that are not only becoming Christians, but they're staying faithfully connected as church members and serving and being a part of gospel mission. The, the chart for America, I don't know if you've looked at it lately, but it's on a downward trend. It's not that way everywhere. There are places in the world most, mostly places that are, are desperate economically, where the chart's headed up. And people are wondering why, why the chart's headed down here in America. And I think part of the problem is um, we've had too many We've had too many jelly-spined men standing in pulpits that were trying to anticipate what itching ears wanted to hear, and they understood that this American culture has gotten to the point where they don't really want you to talk to them like that. They don't really want you to say things to them like, you killed the Son of God with your sin. Now repent and be baptized so that you can be saved. And so preachers have tried to modify what they're doing, what they're saying. And here's what I'm saying. I'm looking back at the book of Acts. I'm looking at the first street preacher ever. We got Peter out here. And I'm just looking at his model. What did he do? Talked about sin and called people to repentance, and the Holy Ghost did something with that. Maybe the chart would turn back upside down if we'd start talking about real stuff. And start being, not being so worried about people's feelings, man. I, yeah, you know what? If you're sitting in pride today and, and you're unrepentant of your sin, I hope... To God that you are broken under the weight of his spirit today. Why? Why, Why are you so mean? I'm not mean, man. I love you. Because, because it, what this says is this leads to death. If you stay in that prideful, unrepentant state, when all this is said and done, when this comes to an end, you're not going to be with God forever. You're going to be away from him forever. 
And I will have failed you, and that's why I will not leave anything off the table. I'm going to put it all down there, and I'm going to let the Holy Ghost do the rest. I trust him. The same way 3,000 people were cut to their heart that day of Pentecost. We're just talking about the same Holy Ghost today. You tell people the truth, and I'm not saying you have to, you know, some of you, you, you hear these characterizations of, these preachers that talk about fire and brimstone and hell, yeah, you know what, I don't think you should spend all of your time trying to give everyone the details of hell to try to scare them to God, because A, the Bible doesn't say as much about hell as you wish it would. We know less about it than we think we do. Secondly, that's not the point. I, it is by the loving kindness of God that we are drawn to him, but I have to first let you know <laughs> that you don't deserve that loving kindness. Because the good news is not so sweet if we don't understand how wretched we are without his grace and mercy. Why does God have loving kindness towards us? Just because we're this privileged race that he decided to create? We are that, but we, we kind of sold that off by our sin. We, we took ourselves out of that spot. And we are in no way deserving of the love and mercy and grace that we see extended to us at the cross. But he did it anyways. See, this is the kind of, this is the kind of, thing, that, this is the kind of thing that has the power to go inside and change a heart from selfish and self-focused to somebody that wants to spend the rest of their life doing stuff like Paul and Titus did. I think, they, I think maybe they encountered this Holy Ghost. I think maybe the God of the universe came and did something in their heart because they went from guys just doing whatever they were doing to spending the rest of their life all the way to their death doing hard stuff all the time to get this gospel message to as many people as possible. Their heart went from all about me to all about getting this message to as many people as possible because I'm overcome with the love of Christ. And that's the kind of people I'm trying to be around. It's the kind of man I'm trying to be. Peter told them they were sinners who needed to repent, and I need you to believe this. That is not unloving. I realize that you are being told the very opposite of that every day very loudly that that media and, and, and all of these other influences, that they are constantly barraging you with this idea that tolerance is the highest form of love. And I need you to understand, it's not. And, and, and I realize, you know, for some, of you that are, <clears throat> for some of you that are single and not married yet, I want you to understand that um, you are not in, in some lesser class. I know sometimes Christians have not done a good job um, not exalting like marriage and the standard family situation to this like enshrined uh, position. So I, I need you to understand like when I when I pull for parable and I pull for illustration from my family situation, it's just that my kids have taught me so much about God, and so I I hope that you don't feel alienated when when I reach to those examples, and I hope you can understand where I'm coming from on that. And if it has made you feel that way, please forgive me, but. Um, just being a daddy has taught, it's just taught me so much about this Father God that we're talking about. And my, you know, my kids want to do dumb stuff all the time. And this tolerance message would tell me that the best way for me to love them is to just let them do it. I should just tolerate whatever it is has popped into their happy little head. You know, it, if it was up to Max, the fridge would just stay open, and dude would tie his hands behind his back and just nom, 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 nom all day long. Whatever he could get his mouth onto would be eaten. And he, he would be morbidly obese if not dead already. I have, to, I have to not tolerate his desire to just eat all the time, and i got to love him and say, son, no, go in the backyard and run around. <laughs> right? My kids, my, my kids could get the idea that playing... The street looks like so much more fun than the grass. If I could just get out in the street, all of my wildest fantasies would come true. And, and that would be amazing. And, and, and so if they were to run out in that street, begin to play in that street, it, it, me as a loving father, I know this isn't that hard to understand, but we don't, I don't know why we don't think about it like this. If I love them, I'm not going to tolerate that behavior. I'm not going to tolerate that idea. I don't care how convinced they've become that all of their happiness and joy is going to be sourced and drawn from this experience of playing in the street. I don't care if I have to shatter everything they've come to believe. Guess what? When I come outside in the middle of that street, they get one, one vocal warning. Get out that street. Here I come. And because I'm bigger than them, they're jerked up out of the street. But, but that's where all my happiness is going to be. No, you're wrong. I love you. Because if they stayed in the street, what's going to happen eventually? Car's going to come. It's going to smash. 
their little deluded brain all over the pavement. I'm not going to let that happen. I love them. I really love them. So I'm not going to tolerate the stupidity they've come to believe. I realize this might be an extreme example, but this, this is what we're dealing with. Most of media and most of the powers that be want you to believe the most loving thing I could do in that situation would be stand there and watch some kids play in the street. Now, I realize that this maybe you don't feel like this translates to people at work and school and other family members that are adults because you don't have the authority to make them get out of the street, but I just want you to come to the table and say, is it more loving for you to tell somebody the truth when they believe something that's not true than it is to just tolerate them, have tolerance for their belief system? If they believe something that leads to death, it's very loving for me, even if they reject me, to get out on that branch and say, listen, man, i got to tell you this. That's not true. We got a brother that's a part of this fellowship right now that at work God has put him in the path of a gentleman that's Muslim. And he is talking to him about faith in Jesus Christ. You know what that man's got to have the guts to do? This brother of ours that's in that situation? He's got to have the guts to tell that guy you're wrong and figure out how to season it with love. And I'm so glad he is. He's got the guts to do it. And God, by his anointing, has taken this brother and beginning to see fruit of those conversations. This man's heart being softened. Praise God for somebody that's still got the guts to say, you know what, that's wrong, but I love you. It's not unloving to tell somebody that they're a sinner in need of a Savior. If the gospel we're preaching is not offending anyone, it's not the gospel. Now, in response to this point on worldly sorrow, I'm anticipating your thoughts. You may say, yeah, uh, but 1 John says that if I just confess my sin, he's faithful, faithful and just to forgive. Some of you may have been quoting scripture back at me in your head, and that's good. I'm glad that you're like a Berean. You've got the scripture written upon your heart, and you're not just taking what I'm selling you know, ad hoc without any filter. That's good, but I'm going to undo that for you. Okay, so... Um, you're wrong on this one. So you would say, First John says, all I have to do is confess my sin. He's faithful and just to forgive. Yes, he said that. And yes, I'm thankful that verse is in there. My God, that he's faithful and just to forgive my sin if I will come and confess. Mm, that's good. However, that can't just be this kind of worldly sorrow. Uh, I'm just going to say it to make myself feel better confession. And here's why. I would ask you to go back and look at it again. Look at the scriptures above it and the scriptures below it. That's called the context. And it's real important that we do that. Go look at it again, because the verse is right above, right before he gets to that beautiful promise that he will forgive. Um, and he's faithful and just to do that. Right above it, he says he wants you to walk in light instead of darkness. That's how he starts. And then the very next verse, after he says he's faithful and just to forgive your sins after you confess, it says explicitly that he's writing these things that you may not sin. Okay, so that beautiful promise is sandwiched between a bunch of stuff that lets us know this is not just, well, if, if, if you're feeling a little bad, we'll just say it, and then we're, then we're cool. It's not about just saying it. It's about what's going on in your heart, man. Do you care that you sinned? I don't mean just because this means something bad has happened. You know, Yeah, you've sinned, and now I'm feeling this consequence, and I feel bad about that. That's worldly sorrow. My sin should, I, I should be destroyed on the inside until God, by his Holy Spirit, comforts me over my sin. It should bother me when I fail a God that loves me as much as our God loves me. When he calls us sons and daughters. When's the last time you let yourself sit and just stew on the beauty of the fact that God, of all the relationships he could use to describe the way he wants us to come to him, said he lets us call him dad and us be sons and daughters. And if that doesn't mess you up good on the inside, I don't know what will. So there in 1 John, clear from the context, it's not this worldly sorrow. I'll just, if I just say it, if I just go to a certain person that has some certain rank uh, in my religious system and I say it to them, then I'm okay? You know what I'm talking about? You know what I'm saying without saying it? That's not how it works. Don't come to me and think that you know, you've got some weird messed up idea that I'm uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm the holy man, I'm the guru, and if I, well, if I come confess my sin to that guy, well, that means I'm absolved of it. Not if you're not repentant. 
I, if you come confess sin to me, I'm, I'm happy to talk to you about that. I'm happy to pray with you that you would go and sin no more. I'm happy to, to pray that God's grace would empower you to not be enslaved by that sin any longer. But just coming and letting your sin reach my ears doesn't mean, oh, wow, sweet. Okay? There's a lot of reasons that's true. I don't have time to get into them all, but just you have to take that for what it's worth right at this moment. Um, all of that being true, uh, we should be wrecked because of our sin. We should be broken because of our sin. It should matter to us when we fall short of God's glory and perfection. That's all true, but because of King Jesus and his finished work, we can have grace and we can have peace. I'm going to flip back over to Titus because uh, I'm quoting him now. I'm quoting Paul talking to him. Um, this is what he says. To Titus, my true child in the common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Because of King Jesus and his finished work, that verse can be written to us. We would have no grace and we would have no peace if it were not for what Jesus came and did. And so I've already done a pretty good job, I think, painting the picture of the bad news. The bottom line is you're not perfect. And you, remember, I love you, but here it comes. You're not good enough to get to God. There you go. However, King Jesus made a way that all of your sin and all of your brokenness and all of your failings could be taken away and that you would be counted as righteousness because of his finished work. We never had the tools to build a bridge back to God. The chasm for us was far too wide, but Jesus came and laid across it and he lets us walk across his back to get to God. He came and made himself the bridge that would take broken sinners separated from God by their sin and reconcile them to the God that loves them. This is the gospel. Jesus came, lived a perfect life, never sinned once, and then he died the death that all of us should have in our place for our sins. He rose three days later from the grave, and here's what the Bible says. You can strive all the rest of your life trying to do enough good to outdo your sin, and you'll never again make yourself perfect. But today, if you can put faith and trust in the finished work of Christ that I just described to you, if you can believe today that what Jesus did was for you, if you can admit to him, if you can repent for sin, if you can say, yes, I'm unable to save myself, and you ask him to be your savior, he will come and he will do that. He will be Lord and King and God over you. He will lead you and guide you and love you and invite you into his presence. And we would invite you to that today. Please put faith in Christ. Please trust him. This is true. And if you need evidence, I would just ask you to find somebody that's smiling after service. Maybe you're on the fence. I, this is the God, I'm not joking. If you're on the fence, I don't, just don't know if I can believe. There's so many YouTube videos that say the Bible's not trustworthy. I know. If, you, if you're having trouble, believe it. Please find somebody with a smile on their face after service and ask them, why do you trust Jesus? Just ask them. And let them talk to you about it. I'm, I'm, I'm begging you to do that. Let them tell you why. They've got joy that cannot be shaken no matter what's going on around them. Ask them why today they walk around with confidence that though they are imperfect, one day they will spend eternity with the God that loves them. Please let them talk to you about why they believe it. And then trust him. Because he is true. He cannot lie. His word is true. And he's proven that he loves you. In verse 4, Paul says to Titus, my true child in a common faith. 1 Corinthians 4.15 says this. It's Paul writing uh, to the Corinthians. He says, for if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. We see this same sentiment as he begins this letter to his friend Titus. This Titus is somebody that he led to Christ. He's discipled him. They're, they're comrades. They've done missions work together, but yet there's still this, this father-son, this, this anointing that only happens because of the gospel, this relationship where he can say to Titus, my true child in a common faith. This is why Paul could write to the Corinthians and say, I became your father through the gospel. And we see other language that would lend itself to this idea, right? That when, when we become Christians, there is in us a new birth. 
right? We become something we've never been before. Where all the old passes away, we become a completely new creation. And so there is, there is a birth, there is a newness, there is a drafting and bringing into this family of God where now I have brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers that I had not before. And I just want to say to you, I am so thankful. I am so thankful for the language of gospel family in the scriptures. I don't know how real it is to you. It's really real to me. And I hope if it's not real to you, I'm going to pray for you at the end of this service, and I'm going to ask God to make it real to you. Because it's so beautiful, man. One of our folks had a baby just this weekend, and I promise you, I feel like we had a baby, man. We had a baby. Somebody that's a part of our fellowship, man, they, they, they brought life into this world, man. That's a, we're a part of it because the gospel binds us together with ties that are so much stronger than biology could ever hope to. I've got fathers that are a part of this church that they weren't there when I was born, but they mean so much to me, and I'm thankful for that. And every man of God, as he grows in faith, should take on more and more the father heart of God. That loving father's heart is what caused him to make the ultimate sacrifice to save us, his children. Because we cannot rescue ourselves. My great hope for every man that is a part of Love City is that every single day you walk with Jesus, you become more like a gospel father. You become more like Paul who raises up Timothys and Tituses, men that are willing to open up their life and invest their life into others and disciple others so that they could come up and also do the same. Because guys, of all the problems we have in this generation and of all the problems we have in this culture, the biggest problem we have is we are a fatherless people. There's a whole bunch of tutors. That's a whole bunch of people with a, with a big mouth that think they can teach you something, but they're not willing to open up their life and do what is necessary to be a father to you. And I would pray that we would be a house full of gospel fathers. If someone would walk in here fatherless, that it, it wouldn't take but a second for them to find somebody that's willing to love them and care for them the way a father should. It means a lot. Gospel family is real. We're going to be together forever, man. You understand that? Like this, if you need evidence that gospel family is, is even more real than biology, let me just say something to you. You won't be with all of your biological family forever. But you're stuck with me and everyone around you that really does love Jesus and is trusted in by faith. That means something. Forever. Forever. <laughs> I know some days you're happier about that than others, but overall, I'm so thankful that's true. And I'm thankful that means we can, we can lash our lives together in a real way and know it's, it's, it's not a waste and, and that we can bind ourselves together for mission. We can be a family that gets something done. And I'm just, I'm just thankful. I'm just thankful that the, uh, the gospel makes fathers out of men. May we be a people with spines of steel and a passion for gospel mission. May we be a people who truly repent and are not only sorrowful because of the consequences, but because of our love for our Father. May we be an authentic and loving family, by God's grace, for His glory, and for our good. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now in the name of Jesus. We are thankful for that privilege. It's not become a common thing to me yet that I can approach you and know that you will hear me. I thank you for an audience with you. And I thank you, not only do you invite me to speak to you, but you invite me to speak to you as a son. I am not deserving of that privilege, and I, I'm just so thankful that it's true, because you cannot lie. Lord God, I pray for every person within the sound of my voice that the reality of a gospel family has not struck their heart, that they are not enamored and joyful when they think about the fact that they have been bound together with others on mission in a way that is of much more consequence than blood or biology ever could. Lord, I ask that joy would spring up on the inside of every person that lacks it when it comes to the realization that the gospel makes us family. I thank you, Lord, for gospel fathers. I ask that you would just supernaturally uh, anoint this group of men, that every single man within the sound of my voice, that every single man that is a part of Love City Church, Lord God, that you would continue this work in them, cultivating in them this Father's heart that you have. Lord, your heart is evident. 
You were sacrificial to a degree that no one else has ever been. You laid down all of yourself for our benefit, Lord. May we learn something from that. May we understand that that's what fathers do. You made a way that your sons and daughters could always have access to you. We learned something about how fathers should be from that, that what you want is your children to have access to you, that you want your children to be close to you. So, Lord, please help us. Just help us. Help us to be better dads to, to our biological children, but also, God, just please increase the capacity of our heart that we could be fathers to those that we had nothing to do with them being conceived, Lord. Help us to have enough love left over for others. The only chance we have at this is to just is to do it by your anointing and by your strength and by your power because, Lord God, we are, we are so prone to be selfish. We are so prone to huddle around and just take care of what we perceive to be ours. But, God, may the, the love and the beauty of the gospel open us up to the idea of a family much larger than we would normally think that we're capable of managing or helping to manage. And, God, may we just may we be excited about the fact that to be a man of God, to be a man of the gospel, means to be a father. Please anoint us for that task, Lord. We love you and we praise you. We give you all honor and glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.